Conversion is reframing and reorienting the heart. Peter doesn't know where or why or what is expected, but he's willing to be led. Dude, remember the tablecloth, you know? He redrew the boundaries of the kingdom. No, that is not the way. The book of Acts is called Acts of the Apostles, but it's really the Acts of the Holy Spirit. As we see the Holy Spirit moving through the apostles and through the early church, uh, he's, he's the one that is, is taking center stage. He's the one that is the impetus. It's really about the ongoing work and ministry of Jesus. Luke tells Theophilus that in the very opening pages of Acts. This is in my first volume. This is all that Jesus began to do, but he's continuing, right? And we see all through the book of Acts that the church is filled with the Spirit, that they are listening to the Spirit, that they are being led by the Spirit to spread the good news. And so in chapter 8, Philip is listening to the Spirit, and the Spirit says, go to Samaria. And then the Spirit says, go to the desert road, and then go up next to this chariot and uh, listen in as this um, Ethiopian is texting and driving at the same time reading a text, actually, out of Isaiah. In chapter 9, Ananias is listening to the Spirit, and the Spirit says, go to Saul, you know, the one that came to put you in prison because of your faith. Go to him and baptize him. In, in the last part of chapter 9, Peter is listening to the Spirit. As Peter traveled, this is verse 32, as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. And there he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic, <clears throat> excuse me, who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now, as you, as you read this, I can't tell you how important it is to pronounce names correctly, right? My last name is Shrump, and people have butchered my name my whole life. And I'm used to it. So I, I know how hard it is for people to mispronounce names. I also know how strong the temptation is when you read a verse like this to revert to sixth grade humor. So we need to get the pronunciation right today. The man's name is not Anus, okay? I just want to get that out there. That was the elephant in the room. And so his name is Aeneas. And so no more cracks on this guy's name, okay? It's all behind us now. He's been the butt of your jokes long enough. Let it go. Okay. Luke writes, as Peter traveled about the country, in chapter 8, after the whole thing in Samaria, Peter and John took their time getting back to Jerusalem, and they went to all of these villages in Samaria. And here, he is continuing going up the coast, Peter is. In Lydda, he heals Aeneas. And Peter is sure to give credit where credit is due. He's not taking any credit for himself. He says, Jesus is the one that healed you. 
And then in the next town, verse 36, in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, also an unfortunate name, who was always doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, Come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room. All the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and other clothing that Dorcas, Tabitha, had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. And then he got down on his knees and he prayed. And turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes. And seeing Peter, she sat up. And he took her by the hand and helped her to her feet. And then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa, don't you think? And many people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. Peter's not just wandering around the country doing random miracles, you know, gratuitous miracles. He does not have his own agenda. He is walking with the Spirit. He is keeping in step with the Spirit. This is God's agenda. He is following his leading. And the Spirit is leading him to very specific places to perform very specific miracles in order to very specifically spread the gospel. These are really efficient miracles. In Lydda and Sharon, all the people, like all the people, turn to the Lord. In Joppa, many people turn to the Lord. God is moving powerfully, and Peter is simply participating in what God is up to. He is in step with the Spirit. So here's a question for us today. What happens when you are keeping in step with the Spirit, and the Spirit makes a significant detour? Have you ever been in a car following, like, maybe this happens at Thanksgiving, where you are uh, with your family somewhere, and then they're going to head across town, you know, to go to a movie at the mall or go to Aunt Edna's house, right? And you, you've been to Aunt Edna's house, like, 50 million times, and so you know the way to Aunt Edna's house, but you're following your, your Uncle Cecil, and uh, Uncle Cecil takes a left when he should have taken a right. You know how to get to Aunt Edna's house, but you feel obligated to follow Uncle Cecil. And everything within you is screaming, no, that is not the way. Have you ever experienced that at all? Okay. Or you're, you're, you're on your Waze app, right? This happened to me a couple months ago. I was heading to Indianapolis and... Uh, Leah had the Waze app on. I was like, I don't need that. And she goes, yes, you do. And so, so Waze app said, you need to exit, the 71st Street exit. And I said, no, you're foolish, Waze. <laughs> but I did. And uh, sure enough, a few miles down the road, Interstate 65 was backed up for miles. I was like, oh, I'm the foolish one, right? You know which way this thing is going, but suddenly there's a detour that throws you off. And so what if God 
called you, put yourself in Peter's shoes for a second, what if called you, God called you to completely shift your whole worldview? We, we all have this box of how we think life should look like, how we think life should go. And for Peter and the early church, the box is about to be emptied out. We've been talking every week about the movement of the gospel, the expanse of the kingdom into the unlikeliest of places, starting at the epicenter, which is Jerusalem, but then to the outsiders in Samaria, right? And then to the continent of Africa via the Ethiopian treasure. And then throughout Palestine, up to this point, every new convert to Christianity has been Jewish. And that's about to change. Chapters 10 and 11 tells a story where outsiders become insiders. It's the deconstruction and reconstruction of Peter's world, of Peter's box, of Peter's ways app as salvation comes to the Gentiles. So this is a, it's a long passage, so I'm going to kind of tell you the story and insert some verses as we go. It's 66 verses in seven acts. Okay? And uh, this is the pivotal point for the church. This is the, the turning point for the history of the church. Scene one, enter Cornelius the centurion. He was an important, high-ranking Roman military official, but he was also devout. He was God-fearing. He was a, a man who was generous and prayed to God regularly. In fact, one day at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, during his regular prayer time, an angel appeared to him, which freaked him out. And the angel said, don't fear. Cornelius, actually, God has heard your prayers, and he has seen your deeds. And I want you to send men to Joppa to go fetch a man named Simon Peter, who is staying at Simon the Tanner's house. It's a little house down by the seashore. God gives them directions, right? God gives them the address. Write this down. Verse 7, as soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, and he told them what had happened and sent them off to Joppa. Scene 2. This is Peter's vision. The next day, about noon, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the house, Peter went up to this flat roof of Simon's house to pray. It was about noon. He was hungry. And while he was waiting for the food to cook, uh, he fell into a, a deep dream or a trance. And in this, he saw a vision. He saw the sky open. And something like a, like a large sheet or a tablecloth was let down by all four corners. And in the sheet were, was this virtual buffet of all kinds of animals. Reptiles, birds, mammals, but both clean and unclean. And the voice said to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat them. Side note, the Old Testament law, especially in Leviticus, gave very strict culinary laws about what Jews could and couldn't eat. And this was to keep them from assimilating with the, with the nations around them. This was to keep their survival, 
to keep them intact as God's people. And so that was a really important deal to the Jews of what you could eat and couldn't eat, what was clean and unclean. It's not like us today in this room thinking, having a vision of Thursday Thanksgiving, right? With roast turkey and pumpkin pie and mashed potatoes and gravy. No, this was... Peter staring at a sheet of animals that he and all other Jews viewed as unclean. Even the ones that were clean, by being with the unclean ones, were contaminated. So let's do a little test about clean and unclean animals, okay? Uh, camels? You, say, you, you call out clean or unclean, okay? Camels? Unclean, yes. Uh, goats? Clean. Eagles? Unclean. Ostrich? Unclean. Good. Cricket? Clean. Lobsters? Yeah, absolutely. Bunnies? Mm, unclean. Locusts? Clean. Yummy. Snakes? Unclean. Badgers? I don't know. Ox, clean. Sheep, clean. Pigs, oh, heck no. That was Peter's reply. Oh, heck no. No, I've never eaten anything unclean. No, by no means. And it wasn't the first time Peter had said that to Jesus, right? No, there is no way you're going to suffer and die. No, there is no way you'll wash my feet. No, there is no way I will, I will ever deny you. Verse 16. The voice spoke again. Don't call, any, don't call something unclean if God has made it clean. And the same vision was repeated three times. And then the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. And it's funny. The angel came to Cornelius and said it once, right? said one thing, but for Peter, Peter, who had been with Jesus, Peter, who was an apostle, uh, it took three times for him to accept this vision. Peter's life is brought to you by the number three, right? Three times he verbally abused, refused God's will. Three times he denied Jesus. Three times Jesus asked Peter if he loved him on the beach, which leads to scene three. This is the journey. Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? And just then, the messengers from Cornelius showed up at Simon the Tanner's house by the seashore. And the Holy Spirit tells Peter, three men have come looking for you. Don't hesitate to go with them. So he goes downstairs and he says, hey, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? And they explained that an angel had appeared to their boss and had sent for Peter, and so uh, they wanted to hear what Peter had to say. So Peter invites them into the house to be his house guest, the house where he was a house guest, which seems a bit presumptive. But the real shocker was that these men were Gentiles. and It was taboo for the Jews to eat a meal with, especially to share a house with a Gentile. So the next day... They head out, the messengers and Peter, and then six men from Joppa who were Jewish Christians. Peter doesn't know where 
or why or what is expected, but he's willing to be led. He knows that God is writing this script, which leads us to scene four, the gathering. When they arrive in Caesarea the following day, Cornelius is waiting, and not just him, but his whole family and his, what it says, his household, his friends, his co-workers, the house is packed. Uh, a few years ago, I went to the Philippines with my friend Pete, and uh, we got the opportunity to speak at a university uh, in Baguio City. And uh, before we got there, uh, Pete said, just to prepare you a bit, uh, when Americans come, it's kind of a big deal. I said, oh. And so we got on campus, and there were posters everywhere announcing our arrival. And we come in, and they had canceled class. And it was mandated that the whole, the whole student body be at this assembly where I got to share the gospel. And they gave us frame certificates and they gave us gifts, and they took lots of pictures, and it was really creepy. But <laughs> it was very cool to get to share the gospel to several hundred Philippine students, uh, Filipino students who wanted to be there. They were anxious to hear. And that's what Peter comes across. Peter walks in, and Cornelius falls at Peter's feet, and immediately Peter deflects the attention, and he disclaims any power or any authority, and he pulls him up and says, stand up, I'm just a human being like you, and they talked together. Then they went inside, and everybody was waiting anxiously, and Peter says, you know, this is taboo, right? You know, I'm going to get in trouble for this. This is against Jewish custom, but God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Now, why am I here exactly? And Cornelius recounts the story, the vision and the angel and sending the messengers to Simon on the seashore. And he says, it was good for you to come. Now we're all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. And so the confusion that Peter had over this tablecloth full of all random animals and reptiles and birds, that's starting to get cleared up. Old divisions are getting broken down. There are more tables being brought up to, I mean, more chairs being pulled up to the table. Scene five is the speech. Peter says, I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. And Peter says, this is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And then he, he gives a sermon about Jesus and his ministry and the crucifixion and the resurrection. He says, actually, uh, I'm, I'm one of the apostles, and so I, I witnessed this. I saw it firsthand. And then we were actually commissioned to spread this good news that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. And even as Peter is saying these things, the Holy Spirit falls on all who were listening to the message. And that shocked Peter. And it shocked his Jewish friends. Which leads to scene six. The interruption. I've experienced a few interruptions while preaching through the years. You know, I've had uh, people raise their hands to ask a question. That's cool. Um, 
the, the power has gone out. There's a cell phone that rings. Peter is interrupted by the Holy Spirit. The gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. That's verse 45. Any doubts that Peter had had about this new paradigm are erased. This is the same Pentecost experience, except this time it's with Gentiles. And Peter says this. He says, why can't they become converts? Peter asked, verse 47, we got a slide for that one. Can anyone object to their being baptized now that they have received the Holy Spirit just as we did? So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. Hmm. Pretty awesome, right? Well, not so fast. There's fallout from this. Peter's got some splaining to do, right? And that gives us, gets us to scene seven, the explanation. Peter is criticized for eating with Gentiles. This is in chapter 11, by the way. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, however many weeks or even months later, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Peter is not getting pushback from other apostles, but from a small group within the Jerusalem church who had this legalistic bent, and they wanted to preserve the Jewish traditions and customs within Christianity. And so they were upset that Peter had gone rogue, and he had, eating, he had eaten with Gentiles. And Peter says, don't blame me. It was God's idea. And starting at the beginning, he told them the whole story, the visions and the tablecloth and the journey to Caesarea and what he was preaching. And then verse 15, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us in the beginning. Remember that? And then I remembered what the Lord had said. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. That's Acts 1.5. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections, and they actually praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. So our military... In order to launch specific missiles, it takes two keys, right? Or if you're watching Stranger Things, you know, trying to reach both keys at the same time. It takes two keys to launch a missile. And what is so amazing about this passage is that God is revealing both to Cornelius and to Simon Peter his big plan. And if it had just been to one of them, it wouldn't have worked. If God had just come to Peter and said, hey, by the way, I'm, I'm, I'm extending the table out to the Gentiles. 
but he hadn't gone to Cornelius, then how would Cornelius have reacted when Peter showed up, right? He would have been very, very confused. If God had just gone, if the Holy Spirit had just gone to Cornelius, and then Cornelius sent messengers to, to Peter's house saying, hey, by the way, we get to be included now. But God had never revealed that to Peter. It wouldn't have worked. Two keys are being switched on at the same time. And so you get this amazing dialogue, this amazing, amazing back and forth. God, through an angel appearing to Cornelius, God, through a vision appearing to Peter, Peter confused just as the messengers walk up saying, hey, this is what this means. And Peter walking with them. And it's like both things happening at the same time, that God is preparing the Gentiles to hear the gospel, but he's also preparing Peter to speak it. He is converting Cornelius and his household to the lordship of Jesus, to the saving work of Jesus on the cross. But he's also converting Peter and the Jewish brothers to a whole new paradigm of what church is. Conversion is reframing and reorienting the heart. It is a change of Heart. It is a reversal. It is, in the Greek, metanoia. It is a new point of view. It is being born again. So there was this huge change for Cornelius and his household, and there was a huge change for Peter and the Jewish believers. Both Cornelius and Peter needed changing for God's mission to move forward. It's conversion in its various forms. Cornelius needed a new point of view about Jesus, but Peter needed a whole new point of view about Gentiles and God's big plan. So there is this, this initial conversion, right? There's this belief in Jesus, baptism, the receive, receiving of the Holy Spirit, your, your life turned around, being, being buried with Christ, being raised to new life. That's conversion, but there's also this ongoingness to conversion. There is ongoing change. Romans 12, don't conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. But that word, be transformed, is actually keep being transformed. It's the process of sanctification. It's a process of chipping away anything that doesn't look like Jesus, but it's also the process of constantly being realigned and having your world rocked by this God who has no boundaries. So Peter needed converted just like Cornelius needed converted, except in a bit of a different way. It's a lifetime of transformation. Think about Peter's conversion. At one point, Jesus said, who are people saying that I am? And Peter says, well, lots of things, but I believe that you are the Christ, the son of the living God, right? That's the confession, right? So in, in a way, that, that is his conversion. That is him acknowledging and believing and putting, putting his full faith in Jesus. Way before that, Jesus' first interaction with Peter had been on the beach. Peter 
on the beach. It's a fisherman. Jesus said, follow me. That was a huge conversion going from, from fisherman flunked out of rabbi school, right? To actually following the king of the universe. There was a huge conversion at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came. And here in the Gentiles' house in Caesarea, his world gets rocked and this picture of church completely gets reframed. And so he has to be converted to a whole new paradigm of how God thinks about his church. If you kept reading in the New Testament, you come across Galatians 2. Paul tells a story that at one point, Paul has to rebuke Peter because Peter is refusing to, out of fear, he's refusing to eat with the Gentiles because he's afraid of what the Jewish people will think. Jewish leaders will think, right? Paul said, dude, remember the tablecloth, you know? There was ongoing, ongoing conversion. Conversion stories are stories about beginnings, new life and new paradigms, but they are also about ongoings. God meets us where we are, but in his grace, he doesn't leave us where we are. So Peter is coming to grips in real time this groundbreaking, ground-shaking realization that the box of assumptions and traditions in ways and means of God was breaking under the weight of grace. Outsiders were becoming insiders. The wall was being broken down. The gospel is crossing ethnic barriers and social boundaries. The Jewish people say, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem say, even to the Gentiles. Wow. Imagine that. Side note, it took a while. Chapter 15, there's a whole council in Jerusalem because um, they're still trying to resolve the matter of how does this work and what are the Gentile Christians expected to do or not to do. It's hard to overcome centuries of prejudice and bias and elitism and tradition. But Jesus said things from the outside like food did not defile the person. It's about what's on the inside, that washing had nothing to do with bacteria and everything to do with separation in Jesus declared all food clean, but he was really declaring all people clean or having access to be clean in the grace of Jesus. Peter was eating with Gentiles. Jesus was accused of eating with sinners. Expanding the table. Uh, If you have a Bible... I'm going to turn quickly as we lead into communion. That's your cue, communion people. It's weird. We haven't had Thanksgiving holiday yet, and all my neighbors have the Christmas lights up. 
And because of the school schedule, we're actually going to do our, you know, our, our Christmas party and Christmas service like the first week in December. So it feels a little, little odd. So just to get us in that theme, let's look at Luke chapter 2. Acts 10 and 11 run in tandem with the Christmas story. So the shepherds are keeping watch over their flocks by night. Suddenly, angel of the Lord stood around them. The glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The angel said, verse 10, Don't be afraid, for look, I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today, a Savior who is Messiah, the Lord, was born to you in the city of David. And this will be a sign. You'll find the baby wrapped snugly in cloth and lying in a feeding trough. And suddenly there was a great multitude of heavenly hosts with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to people he favors. Peace on earth to people he favors. And the Jews thought, yeah, that's us. And God's saying, no, that's y'all. Peter says, I see finally today that God shows no favoritism. And that line is echoed throughout the New Testament. God shows no favoritism. Christ, a light for the revelation to the Gentiles, salvation to all people. Go on in chapter 2. This is Simeon, the old guy, in the temple, blessing baby Jesus. He says, my eyes have seen your salvation, verse 31. You have prepared it in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and glory to your people Israel. Peace. On earth, not just between God and humanity, but between Jews and Gentiles. Peter says, I see very clearly God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. Another translation says, in every nation, the God fear is acceptable. Luke is not advocating that Cornelius, because he's a good dude, because of his piety, can, is already saved, that he can be saved apart from faith in Christ. That's not what he's saying. Acceptable means an acceptable state of repentance, to hear and receive the message of salvation and release from sins. Dave mentioned last week that repentance is not just feeling sorry for my sins. It's not just a step First step toward Jesus. It is the gift of the Spirit to be able to turn toward truth, toward life, toward Jesus. We are unable to do this on our own, but in Christ, God has turned toward us. He has given us the gift of repentance. It's more than I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. It starts with God's pursuit of us. It's not beating up ourselves about sin or striving and working to get it right. It is responding to and receiving the gift of grace. It is responding to God's turning toward us. 
to the message of Acts 8 through 11 is that through Christ, now everyone can turn and return to God. Samaritans and Ethiopians and Saul the persecutor and a house full of Gentiles, everyone can be forgiven. Everyone can be restored. Everyone can be reconciled. Everyone can be filled with the Spirit. Everyone can have eternal life and hope that is achieved through the cross in the empty tomb. Would you all go ahead and pass out the bread and the cup? I just want to read Ephesians chapter 2 over us as we receive it. He tore down the wall. We used to keep each other at a distance. He repealed the law code that had become so clogged with fine print and footnotes that it hindered, <clears throat> it hindered more than it helped. And then he started over. Instead of continuing with two groups of people separated by centuries of animosity and suspicion, he created a new kind of human being, a fresh start for everybody. Christ brought us together through his death on the cross. The cross got us to embrace, and that was the end of hostility. Listen to this. Christ came and preached peace to you outsiders and peace to us insiders. He treated us as equals and so made us equals. Through him, we both share the same spirit and have equal access to the Father. The wall was a big deal. It shut the Gentile out from the presence of God. And that's why it was so shocking that God destroyed the barrier. He removed the fence. He tore down the wall. He wasn't trying to remodel Judaism. He wasn't adding a little Gentile rim on the back. This wasn't a hybrid project. <clears throat> this was something completely new. He redrew the boundaries of the kingdom to save the real world. So Peter says, this is the message of good news, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. So let me ask as we take communion today, what walls has he broken through to reach you? No one is beyond the outstretched arms of Jesus. Oh, to grace, how great.